Would you pause with me as we open up our hearts before our God in prayer? What a perfect song to hear, God, as the very last song before we open your word, because we do surrender. We surrender ourselves to you in this moment, in our minds and our hearts. We ask that your Holy Spirit would speak, that you would settle us in to hear from you today. Jesus, thank you for being present with us here. May we understand what you have for each one of us today. In the name of Jesus, amen. How many of you have been to Philadelphia on the East Coast? Raise your hand if you've been there. Yeah, you were born near there, Josiah. How many of you have been to the city of Philadelphia with the letter that we're looking at? <laughs> Two of us, great. How many of you are going there next year? Yay, there's several people that are signed up for a tour next year, so they can't wait. Philadelphia, the church in Philadelphia was located strategically on the road from Rome to the east. It was fortified. It was a place that was known for its fertile soil. Eumenes II, he lived in 159 BC, it's when he was born at least, his brother's loyalty, his brother being Attalus, gave him the nickname, because of his loyalty, Philadelphos, which means literally, one who loves his brother. So Attalus loved his brother Eumenes so much that they started to recognize him by that name more than his given name. So Philadelphos, his brother, went on to name this city after him because of his great love and his loyalty. We lived in Philadelphia for nearly nine years. Josiah was born near there. So even just hearing the name Philadelphia conjures up good memories in our mind. But I want to take you back into that context in which this letter was written. It was a city of influence located on the great volcanic plain with really fertile soil. Growing grapes especially was their specialty. So it's not any surprise that it was the center of worship for the Greek god Dionysus, the god of wine. No surprise, right? So the proximity to the active volcanoes meant that the people were constantly in danger. Because the city was built on the plates and things constantly moving, there were earthquakes. We don't know anything about that, right? Earthquakes, shadow of a volcano, they experienced constant threat. And as a result, most of the people lived outside the city and would come into the city to start their day, their work. But because of the danger of falling buildings when you have an earthquake, they lived outside on the edges. This was the city of Philadelphia. It was more than just the gateway to the east, more than just a fertile valley. It was an open door of opportunity, spiritually speaking. In Philadelphia, there was a group of faithful Christians. The church that we studied last week is very different than this, and even some of the previous churches that we studied, because in this group, in these, this group of Christians, they were not as influential. They didn't live in the most prominent city of their time, and yet they were important to Jesus, and he speaks to them. If you recall from the previous times, we're on the second to last church, 
the seventh church, Laodicea, is next week. And the pattern in these letters, they follow this pattern Jesus does in writing to them. He talks about who he is to them, his character, and how that meets their need. He shares an affirmation with that church. He rebukes them if there's a need. And then he promises them something that will give them encouragement to stay faithful to the end. There's a difference with this letter, though. I want you to listen for it. This letter to the church in Philadelphia has one variance. Let's go to this section right here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, starting there. Thank you so much for reading that, Elder Sam. The letter to the church in Philadelphia, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true. Verse 7, you're following along there. What he opens, uh, the words of him who is faithful, holy, and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Those who are victorious, I will make pillars in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them a new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Hear the word of the Lord. Remember how Jesus first comes to them and he tells them something about himself that they can hold on to. Here Jesus calls himself by three things. He is holy, he is true, and he holds the key. Let's look at these for a moment. Jesus says he is holy. That means he's morally perfect without flaw. He shows his deity to these in Philadelphia, these believers. This would have been really important for them to remember because remember when you're suffering, you need to have eyes on the one whom you're suffering for. So his eyes are, their eyes are fixed on the one, the divine one who reveals himself to them. Jesus also says, I am true. The one who is sovereign and trustworthy, reliable in his word and his witness. There are two ways to translate this, him calling himself this. It, it could be the translated the faithfulness of the one, that he's saying, I'm going to be faithful to you. Trust me that I won't make you endure more than you can handle. Another way to read it is that he is the true one, that as they look all around them, they see falsehood, but Jesus stands in stark contrast to the falsehood they see around them. And then my favorite, Jesus says he holds the key of David. Now this is an interesting description. We all know that the person who has keys has authority, right? 
When you sign up for a ministry, we're in nominating committee season, we may call you. And we call you to a position, but we also give you authority. So we have you sign a key contract and we hand you a key so that you can open doors and yes, shut them and lock them after you leave. But the person who holds the key has authority. But this Jesus takes it to another level. He says, I'm the one who can open doors and no one else can shut them. I'm the one who can shut doors and no one else can open them. He speaks of himself with ultimate authority. In Revelation 1.18, earlier on in the book, he says that he holds the keys to death and Hades. Jesus is saying he is the one who holds the key, the final judgment. It's this beautiful promise for these people in Philadelphia that are going through suffering and trial, saying Jesus is the authoritative ruler of all. And that would have been tremendously comforting to them. This actually comes from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 22. If you want to turn there, Isaiah chapter 22, Isaiah condemns the city of Jerusalem. They had just been delivered from their enemies and they showed no gratitude for their divine rescue. The charge put on them was that they were self-sufficient. They trusted in their weapons, their efforts to strengthen the city walls, their stores of water to get them through, instead of celebrating that God had led them through. He then turns his attention to an individual named Shebna, the chief steward of Jerusalem. He was guilty of the same sin as the city itself. It says that he paraded himself through the city streets. He built an elaborate grave for himself, a tomb where he would lay. He was lording himself over others. And Shebna was calling himself a mighty man, indispensable to the city in verse 17. Then as a result of this, his unfaithful service, he was replaced by Eliakim, now, the significance of the image was that this steward, this chief steward, held the key of David. That was the master key. Not just the key to the whole city, but the key to the palace, too. He was only second to the king. He controlled who would come in and see the king and who would not get to see the king. This was the chief steward. He was second only to the king. Now hear what this says in Isaiah chapter 22. In that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Do you hear this? From Revelation 3, I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will become a seat of honor for the house of his father. So Revelation, alluding back to Isaiah 22, is saying Jesus himself is the new Eliakim. But the doors he is opening are not the doors of the city or even the doors of the palace, not any earthly door, but the keys of the kingdom. That Jesus holds the key. And the doors he opens cannot be shut. And the doors he shuts cannot be opened. 
This is such good news. If you were there in Philadelphia, you might be just thrilled. Your heart would be moved because he's saying that Jesus has complete authority. He has opened up the way. And while we have an individual experience with Jesus, and we celebrate the salvation Jesus offers, we also must keep firmly in our minds the global experience of salvation. It's why people in Taraja turned to Jesus, because Jesus was drawing them in his love. He was wooing them with his love. And the door is firmly, firmly opened because Jesus opens doors no one can shut. And so Jesus is saying here in this passage that he is the new Eliakim, that he is the one who opens the door for people to encounter the living God. There's all sorts of beautiful references to doors in scripture. I'm just gonna share three with you right now. Revelation 3.20 is a beautiful one. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. You see, Jesus would love it if everyone received him. Jesus is calling every person to himself. God desires to have us come to him. John chapter 10 says, therefore Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. And verse nine goes on to say, I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Jesus was getting across this message that I am the gate, I'm the door, I'm the way for people to enter. And in Colossians 4.3, Paul says, for the church to pray for a door of opportunity, that Christ's salvation was coming to the world. And so pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. That's why we pray before any international or mission right here, that we're praying God will go ahead of us because the mystery of Christ the salvation of Jesus is something we long to have go to our friends, to our family, to our neighbors. Philadelphia was a blessed city. That's why Jesus describes himself in this way. They were living in this land of opportunity, not just the fertile soil, but because the Lord was opening up doors for them. Verse 8 says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, and no one is able to shut it. Because you have little power, have kept my word and have not denied my name. This is the com commendation of Jesus. He affirms them. He says, there's an open door of opportunity. He says, you don't have any power, you're weak, but you've relied on my word and you haven't denied my name. It's good to pray for doors of opportunity. We want to be open to where the doors of opportunity are in our lives and to pray for where God might be leading us. There's a pastor that told me this story of a man, a man who would pray every day, Lord, send me to someone who needs to hear of the love of Jesus. Send me to someone that I can, I can talk to about the salvation of Jesus. And so one day, having prayed this at home, he got out and he got onto the bus. Now, I haven't ridden a bus in this entire time living in Southern California, but we rode the bus in the metro more frequently. It's just here, it's so spread out. We, but he, you know, regular city life, he jumped onto the bus. But the bus was empty except him 
until this man, a big man, broad shoulders, got onto the bus. But instead of taking any of the open seats, he came and sat right next to him. Suddenly the man is like nervous, anxious. He's wondering, why did he choose this seat? I just want to get off this bus. He's just, he's praying, just let me off this bus. And the man with his broad shoulders, he starts to shake, his body shaking as he cries. I'm so lost. I'm so lost, I want to meet God. I just want someone to tell me how do I meet God. I just want to be saved. And the man sitting next to him looks up quickly to heaven, bows his head and says, Lord, is this, is this a sign? <laughs> we, can, we can miss opportunities right in front of us, can't we? It's like, I've opened the door. Right? Talk to him. So I love how Jesus commends this church in Philadelphia, not because they have power, not because they're strong, but because they haven't denied his name, because they believe his word, and they're walking through doors of opportunity that he sends them. I think that's what Jesus is longing for for us. Not to manufacture something, not to be the Holy Spirit, but would you walk through the door that I've opened for you? You know, your coworker is coming to you. Your friend asked you this question. Why do you have so much peace? How is it that you can go through this? How do you have joy? Answer, don't deny his name. Depend on my word. Don't depend on your own power. They were able to stand in that strength because of Jesus. Not because of themselves, but because of Jesus. So he kept opening up doors of opportunity to them. Not because they were living in the most influential city. Not because they were a church with power or wealth like some of the other churches that we have looked at. But because they were dependent on him. The church in their weakness, in their lack of influence, was given opportunities beyond what they were able to imagine. I think Jesus is longing to do that right now with the church, with us as people, as we seek him, as we don't depend on our own strength. Jesus is looking to open up doors of opportunity for you and your family, for us collectively, that as we don't depend on our own strength, that God would just keep multiplying the influence. And you'll hear more stories when we come to November 26th with the missions and gratitude Sabbath, but that's what happened in Taraja, the open doors, the Holy Spirit going ahead, and you'll hear these stories. But what about in our own lives? If we are willing to walk through the open doors of God, God will keep opening them up. There's this tension in our Christian journey. There is a tension that we face because we are free in Christ. We are saved because of Jesus. And there's nothing that you can do to add to that gift. It's a gift. Amen? It's a gift. You've received the gift of Jesus and you're free in him. And your actions can't add to it. And... Your actions are the way that others come to know the love of God. So we see the love of Jesus. We experience the love of Jesus. 
And Jesus says, I want to, through your words and through your actions, to make myself manifest to the world. Not because then suddenly our external behaviors are a part of what saves us, but it's how others come to know who God is. There's this transforming power of God in our lives, and God works so that we're not the same as when we first met Jesus. The temptation is to begin to wear these as badges of elitism. These are the things that separate me from the world, that I worship on a certain day, that I eat this and don't eat that, that I used to do this, but now I don't do that anymore. The people during the time that Jesus came into the world had that frame of mind too. It's a human thing. They became entrenched in their lifestyle. These are the things that separate us as the people of God. The Sabbath, the circumcision, the feast days, abstaining from certain foods. Any religion is capable of this because it's a human problem. Here are the things that make me closer to God. If there is limited good in the world, then I have access to that because this is how God wants me to act. It's a human problem. Yet Christianity transforms us not to build walls, but to build bridges. We are called to be different than what we were before we met Christ. But instead of this life separating us and making us different beyond connection, it actually brings us closer because our hearts are softened by the love we received ourselves. So instead of building up walls, the message and love of Jesus builds bridges to those around me. As we look to our Savior and we realize that there is no limit to the blessings, no limit to the love and salvation, as we experience this transforming power in our lives like the Philadelphians were, we recognize that in our weakness, we are part of drawing others to the love of God. It's really a remarkable gift. These Philadelphians, these members of this church, though they were without much power, they were experiencing the power of God as they walked through open doors. And you know what? The thing missing in this letter is there is no rebuke. There is no rebuke. They had limited power. They were depending on Jesus. They were holding on. And when Jesus sees weakness and dependence on him, he doesn't come along and rebuke that church. He leaves out the rebuke altogether. He comes along and tells them, hold on. Keep holding on. If you find yourself weak and low, hear that as a word from Jesus, that he comes along with strength and with promise and with affirmation. He comes along to encourage. So there's no rebuke to this church. It shouldn't surprise us with all these wonderful opportunities for service that you'll actually hear in this passage, the other side too, that there's this a counterpart that there's also opportunities for selfishness or pride or compromise, that he's telling them to hold steadfast against those things, that instead that they would see what they're going through as an opportunity for God to work. There's a story of an organization in Montana where the wolf population had gotten out of hand, and they were paying for live wolf captures. So they were inviting hunters to go out, and as long as the wolf was alive, they would receive $5,000 for that wolf. And so these two hunters, they were like, this is gonna be amazing. We're good at this, we can handle this. 
And they went out and they started searching. Now, keep in mind, they'd seen wolves just a lot. But day after day, they saw none. Day after day. Well, on the third night, they laid down and they went to sleep exhausted because they had not seen any at all. And as they're sleeping there, one of them is woken up by hearing a low growl. And then another until it's a chorus of low growls. And he wakes up his friend quickly and they both stare into the night and they see dozens of eyes surrounding them. Dozens of eyes in the night glinting. And the friend turns to his friend beside him and says, we're gonna be rich. <laughs> we're gonna be rich. <laughs> perhaps, <laughs> perhaps Jesus was reframing for the church in Philadelphia. Sometimes when we are surrounded by what appears to be many difficulties, we may in fact be surrounded by opportunity. Christ recognized that often opportunity and opposition go hand in hand. Opportunity and opposition often go hand in hand. And we don't like it. How many of you love opposition? How many of you love pain? No, but does God form you in it? Does God shape your character? Does God give you the foundation that you need? Yes, God does this. And so God gives them four specific promises of comfort. To these precious ones in Philadelphia, he says, that I will, in verse nine, he says, humble your enemies to acknowledge the truth that I have loved you. I love that that's what he has them go to, is that the enemies that are against him will end up needing to say, I loved you. Like, it's the highest honor. Like, they will acknowledge that I loved you. And then he promises the second thing, to keep them from an hour of maximum trial in verse 10. He says, I'm going to spare you from some trials that are coming. And the third, in verses 11 and 12, he says, I will give you strength and security. Listen to this. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Those who are victorious, I will make pillars in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Remember what I said about Philadelphia being built right next to these volcanoes and the shifting plates, the earthquakes that were happening? Well, when the earthquakes happened, they would need to rebuild the city with the exception of the pillars because the pillars were often the only things left standing after an earthquake. And so they would go through and rebuild the city. Those pillars would be the only things left. Even in Jerusalem in AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, there were two great pillars in front of the building, Jachin, which means established and permanent, and Boaz, which means strength. Pillars were synonymous with strength and permanence. So Christ promises to set up the believers in Philadelphia in such a secure way that they cannot be moved. That they could not be moved. Yes, you're going through a lot. Yes, your family is facing a lot right now and you feel like the very earth is shaking under you or maybe the volcano is erupting and the lava is pouring out into the streets. But Jesus says, I will keep you firm like a pillar 
Because when everything else falls down, when all of it is on the ground, the pillars remain standing. I will keep you firm and secure. The psalmist calls out as he's going through so much, he, he calls out after a praise session with God, he says, the earth is established firm and secure. Jesus reminds him, you are a pillar in the temple of God. Could you show that picture again for a moment of Philadelphia? This is when I was there. They have the old ruins and then, of course, the new buildings just beyond it. These are the, the, the ancient ruins. Oftentimes, when you go to archaeological sites, it's the pillars that remain. So you walk up and you don't see much, but you see the pillars. Jesus is giving them this hope, this sure foundation that they rest on, that even as you're being shaken, even as the volcanoes are erupting, even as this feels very uncertain and unsteady, you will be like a pillar, firm and secure, because of who your foundation is on. And then finally, the fourth promise is that he promises to give them a new name, a new name that's reflective of their character. If you feel the struggle and the tension in your own life, if you feel like your spiritual journey is four steps forward and eight steps back and you find yourself struggling with the same things again, hear again what Jesus commends this church for. Weakness, that is dependence on God alone, being dependent on the word of God, holding on to his name, refusing to give up, persevering, keeping on going, and going through doors of opportunity that Jesus puts before them. It's not dependent, friends, on your own strength. It's not dependent on you having all of the answers, but it's dependent on trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. So we pray that Jesus may find a church of love here in this city of Grand Terrace, that Jesus may find a church that is going through doors of opportunity that God puts before us, that we are in our weakness depending on the strength of God, that we are holding fast to his word, that we persist in holding on to his name with perseverance. May it be so even in this community.